You know, I, there's, I was thinking about the idea of heroes this week and individuals, as I just mentioned, who step into our life at the right time that literally become heroes to us. Uh, I was reading an article about how corporate America has really shifted a lot of uh, their focus when it comes to the idea of just revenues and money and then speaking back into our communities. Uh, there's a number, obviously, the, the, the new movement is, is that there's corporations that make lots of money, but they're also speaking back into our communities by donating money and giving things back. One example was Ken Blanchard, who co-authored How to Make Serious Money for Both You and Your Company. In there, he talks about tithing 10% of their profits. We divided among all our employees to give away. The lowest paid employee gets to give $1,000 away, and the highest paid gets to give $3,500. We gave to 160 different charities last year. Uh, the idea here was that the result of this sort of personalized giving uh, are touching. A guy in shipping came up with the tears in his eyes, Blanchard said one time. He got the chance to give $1,000 to his parish to buy robes for the choir. He became their local hero. Sometimes we forget that God has called us not to live selfish lives, but we are to live it in many ways for others, clearly to live for Christ. But we often have lost touch in a world that is crushing us with the idea that God sometimes will bring people into our life, and we can all reflect on that, who just took the time, made the sacrifices, was so intentional about moving alongside in our journey that it literally changed everything for us. In fact, for us as guys, sometimes we don't even appreciate it when it happens. It, I remember uh, years after I got out of youth group that the one thing, if someone said, what was your youth group like, I, the one thing I remember is Ken Simpson taking me ice fishing. I don't know why I remember that. I, don't, I think a lot of it had to do with why would anyone pay attention to me outside of the normal structures? I mean, there they're doing their job. I really didn't feel like I had any friends, and the fact that he took the time to take me fishing has just stuck with me. I, I, it hasn't been that I've sat here and thought about it every night and all that kind of, it just sticks with me. Because there was something about his generosity of his life doing something that I didn't, never had done before that all of a sudden said he values me the way most people don't. And it was intriguing to me how something like that seems so simple and simply was a, a few hours in an afternoon made such a mark in terms of how I thought about my relationship to him. He was, wasn't even the youth pastor, he was a volunteer that was helping out in the youth group. And yet I still remember his act of generosity. I don't know what that looks like for you and I don't know how many, whether it's one or many, that you can think of, but we wanna think about that a little bit in terms of Mark chapter one this morning. The text that we're going to look at is an abbreviated version of a very lengthy one in Matthew that talks about the baptism of Jesus. While this is short and to the point, there is a lot behind it, and uh, I don't want to exacerbate the simplicity of what Mark says, but there are some things that obviously uh, in this text that raises questions that we'll try to think about a little bit this morning. Mark 1.9 says this, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. 
You know, this is what a story, unfortunately, for most of us is pretty familiar. In fact, we know Matthew 4 that talks about this in like 11 verses and has much greater uh, details in terms of the experience that happens in this context. But what I want you to notice is that in terms of what's happening here, John, the one who came baptizing people for the repentance of sins, has been preparing Israel for this moment. And this is the the time that John gets to introduce the person who's going to step into the life of Israel that can change everything. It's all going to depend on their receptivity to Christ and whether they can see the opportunity that John is presenting to them. But Christ is the one, as much as John paved the way and attracted a lot of people, his ambition was to put someone in front of the people that could really change the trajectory of their life. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and and the the idea here is that there's no greater moment in life when you meet the one person that can change everything. There's no greater moment in life when we've come face to face with the one person who literally can change everything. We've experienced it in some of our, our life. Some of you might have been adopted and, and there's a family that took the time to, to, as it were, take you from an environment that you weren't even aware of, but if it was very unhealthy, the adoption usually puts you into a much healthier environment and changes everything about life. For other individuals, it might be a friend who stood up for you when you were being bullied. For other individuals, it's a neighbor who came to help at a moment of crisis. It might be a coworker who took the time to have lunch and find out more than just the regular routines of work. I don't know what that looks like for you, but it's a person who was there at the right moment, at the right time, who changed everything for you in terms of the way you looked at life. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do and what John is trying to do is to help these people, Israel, see that here's a person that can change everything. I want to look at Three different things, basically. I want to talk about the introduction of Jesus as a citizen uh, of the environment that he's living in. Uh, He comes, we're told in the text, that he comes from the city of Nazareth. Uh, It is a city that is more in the central part of uh, Galilee. I'll show you a picture of the map in a minute. Uh, But it lays in a basin, so it doesn't like have spectacular views from the city itself. In fact, you have to work your way up to the the ridgeline, but when you go up to the ridgeline, then you can see probably in 30 miles in all the different directions. It's a fairly spectacular view from what I've told. I've never been there. It lies on the southern range of the lower Galilee section or territory, and it's about 10 miles from the valley of Estralon or Jezreel, which... uh, Again, you may or may not be familiar with it. Uh, Even the best students usually have no idea where any of this stuff is. Um, One of the things, and I'll show you a map just so that you have some sense of where this is, because the point is, this is a real place with real people and real cities and real environments. Uh, So the Sea of Galilee is the one that is... Uh, Up there in the middle, we're familiar with that, the River Jordan runs all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is not on the map, but uh, as you go straight, uh, where am I going, east? Uh, Nazareth is kind of in the central section of the country. It's on the lower section of Galilee, and if you were to go up and start surveying around there, there's a lot of biblical historical events that took place. Barak's and Gideon's uh, victories are just south of that. The, 
the Valley of Jezreel is south of Nazareth. You can see maybe a possible little river running in from the coast. And this valley is just, uh, that river's on the north end of this valley that I'm talking about. Saul's defeat and death was in that area of, of the map, as it were. Josiah's defeats happened in this t- particular territory. The Maccabees, which uh, is more unfamiliar to most people, is sort of between the Testaments or individuals uh, that sh- had a lot of struggles there. Nabob's vineyard, if you read in the Old Testament, would be in this particular environment or this context. Uh, there's a lot of, the house of Elisha is, would be in this area. Mount Carmel and the place of Elijah's sacrifices that we're quite familiar with. If you go through it, you could probably find 20 different key battles in the Old Testament that are up in this particular area where Jesus is told that he is from. So there's a tremendous amount of history. I mean, we think we're old in America. I mean, this is the legacy of being old. I mean, this is sort of not quite the birthplace of humanity, but it is something that is historically significant in terms of Israel's history and what's going on. But I want to simply point out to you that Jesus was a citizen of Nazareth. The culture of Nazareth itself uh, is, I describe it in three ways. One, it's insignificant. The Hebrew word for Nazareth is nitzer. It means branch or gem, or germ, I'm sorry. It's the idea of being small or insignificant. And so the very nature of Nazareth was somewhat of an insignificant kind of place in terms of other more significant cities. Uh, if you wanted to insult somebody, it wasn't, you know, we're used to dishing that off on the Samaritans. So, but if you were called a Nazarene, it literally had about it the feel of being a despised person. Uh, and so it was, and part of it was the conduct of the people were somewhat immoral. It was not very cultured. Uh, its language was rough. Uh, it was Uh, kind of a seditious place that was unclean and that there was a mixture of different ethnic groups that married together. And so as far as the Jews were concerned, it wasn't the most popular place. You wouldn't go on vacation here. Um, In fact, um, it just lacked a sense of, I don't know, royalty. It lacked a sense of significance in terms of the ebb and flow, but it was significant in terms of traffic going down to Egypt and so on. Uh, The the reason why, um, in fact, early Christians, if they were often identified as Nazarenes, was kind of a a, a statement of contempt. Uh, And the idea that Jesus or the Messiah would come from here was not really a realistic statement. In fact, just to sort of capture this, John chapter one, where Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law spoke about and also the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's statement is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I, I'm not quite sure the, the, how to get you to feel this a little bit. It'd be like a lot of cities saying, do you want to go into the inner city? Do you want to go hang out in there? Do you want to? Well, unfortunately, the, the labels that we give, even our own environments, like being an inner city kind of environment, sort of comes off negative to a lot of people. It's not safe, it's not the best place. But I want you to notice that when John is baptizing Jesus, we can guess, but he's probably around 30 years old. But we have to remember that Jesus grew up here. I mean, Mark skips over all of his younger life. 
And we have stories in the other Gospels that talk about Jesus when he was very young, around 12, they're going to the temple and everything, and then he just abandons mom and dad and goes, hangs out in the temple and talks with the scribes and the Pharisees who are like stunned by this 12-year-old who seems to know way more than they do. But the idea is that he grew up in this particular environment. He was a citizen of it. He probably had friends with other kids in the neighborhood, as whatever that looks like. But it's just, it's not maybe the place they'd, you'd think that the one who was to be born king would grow up in. But Nazareth is kind of this out of the way, insignificant, disreputable place, and it's just hard to go, boy, this is where I want to grow up. And, and so as you begin to look at this, we see that the context of Nazareth uh, really has a sense of history to it, though. In spite of all those things, and whether you choose to live there or not, uh, we have to remember Matthew chapter two. Remember when Mary and Joseph had Jesus, uh, Herod was not in a good mood, and so he tried to destroy them, and an angel appeared to Joseph saying, flee to Egypt. Then when Herod died, the angel came back and said, go back to Israel. But then they hear this statement. When they get close, they find out that Archelaus uh, who is the son of Herod, was ruling, and they were afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, the lake that we just looked at. And, as it goes on to say, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he'd be called a Nazarene. So this is where he grew up. This is a, but in all of this, the fingerprints of God is on the life journey of Mary and Joseph. And I think one of the things we need to realize is that as believers in Christ, I'm firmly, and whether you have a high view of God's sovereignty and involvement in your life, I don't know, but I think God has his fingerprints on the journey of our lives. We can't pick who our parents are. We can't pick what they look like. We can't pick the people around us who do awful, hurtful things to other individuals because of their own ego and evilness. But those circumstances still had God's fingerprints in terms of guiding them to a place called Nazareth as disreputable. I have a feeling that Mary and Joseph kind of went, well, if we go back to Galilee, Herod and his guys aren't going to come into the inner city of Nazareth. Let's, it's a good place to hide. I mean, the schools may not be great, but it's a good place to hide. But we have to realize, what the point is, is that they're, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are human beings living in a real context, in a real place, and he grew up in an environment that wasn't always safe and it had a bad reputation. I mean, you don't even want to be from Nazareth, much less go to Nazareth. But that was his environment. These are real people. But as you move through this text, he's going to not spend a lot of time elaborating on those things. He's simply going to point out that when he, he, he comes to this particular environment and he comes out out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And as we begin to look at this, I want you to understand a little bit of the context in which Jesus grew up. He is a citizen, but he's also called. He uh, comes to John in the middle of this attraction that John has with all these people and everyone in Jerusalem and Judea are coming to see Jesus, which most of that is south of Nazareth. That's where the people are flocking from. Jesus is kind of on his own coming from there, and Jesus seeks John out. John isn't seeking Jesus out. He's preparing Israel, and that's his focus. 
And Jesus comes and seeks him out and says, I want to bapt- need you to baptize me, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's part of the installation of his calling that God has placed on his life. And so when he comes out of the water, we discover that there's two things that are going to happen. We're going to see and acknowledge because of the baptism and what immediately follows that Jesus is both a representative of humanity and he's a representative of heaven. That he is being part of this sort of two different worlds and he's the mediator in between. He's the chosen representative. And as we begin to think about this whole process, uh, he's a representative of humanity in probably every sense of the word we could talk about. The fact that he is baptized, baptism is simply stated here, it's a fact. It doesn't mean that the baptism was the catalyst that brought the Spirit of God upon him. It happened all by itself, and then afterward, these other events unfolded. So there's uh, no argument here to say that this baptism is the thing that got Jesus baptized by the Holy Spirit or anything like that. It is a separate event in terms of the language of the text, and, and this, but this event happens. And, and it's really the investiture of what Jesus is and what he's going to be. He's a representative of humanity because, and I believe the element of being baptized is simply this, Jesus is the one who's mightier than John. He already said, someone's gonna come along and I'm not worthy to undo his sandals. And so the idea that Jesus says, I need you to baptize me, probably rattles John completely. Uh, We see from the other gospels, he's going like, okay, I'm missing something here. You don't need to do this. I need to be baptized by you. So John understands the tension that's going on here. But Jesus says, no, I need you to baptize me. And while it confuses him, he goes ahead and does it. And I believe Jesus ends up reaffirming John's ministry to the people he's been calling to repent because John is recognizing Jesus as the one who's greater and way more worthy of anything that, of even being in his presence. So Jesus reaffirms John's ministry by allowing him to baptize him and reciprocates the significance of what John is doing. But the other element of this is that while he validates John's ministry, John now publicly identifies and promotes Jesus to center stage with the people of Israel. He's saying, this is the guy that I've been talking about. This is the guy that I've been preparing you for. Here's everything that I've been doing has been pushing to this moment to introduce you to the one person who can change everything. And, and, it, and he presents Jesus in this glorious way so that they will get the reality of what they need to do. But as he moves through this, John is really fulfilling his ministry. He's bringing it to a close, at least in terms of the formal aspects of his ministry. He's not done doing ministry, but the formal parts of it. He identifies the Messiah. He classifies the one that they need to believe in that's related to the good news of Isaiah. And he is one who pinpoints the one who is going to bear the sin of the world. And I think that's the metaphorical picture here about John baptizing Jesus. Jesus didn't need to repent of his sin. He's going to take away sin. He is not going to confess his own sins. He's the sacrifice that God's going to satisfy the judgment and the wrath of God for sins. And so he fully identifies with humanity in this act, but as, uh, as the one who's going to be the redeemer, not the one who needs to confess sin. And, and so he is also the one who isolates him when the Holy Spirit comes down as being God's messenger. 
So he is not only a representative of humanity, he's a representative of heaven. And the picture here of the heavens being torn open is used in different places in the New Testament. When someone has a vision, Paul talked about it, the heavens were opened, and, I, and, and some, he talks about actually being caught up into heaven, but there's others that will have a vision where the heavens are open, like Peter, and, and a tent comes down, a big blanket with food, and, and, uh, and, and so it's pretty clear that this is a message from heaven. It's not a message from a church leader. It's not just a message from an apostle. It's not from some preacher. It comes directly from heaven. And so he becomes, uh, actually, God comes on the scene after John does his element of baptism, and Jesus, frankly, is sanctioned from heaven as God's representative. And it's demonstrated in a couple of ways. It tells us that Jesus saw two things. In this particular text, it's simply, it's a first person singular, so we know that it just talks about what Jesus saw. It's not talking about what anybody else saw. That's another part of a different gospel. But in this particular one, he says, hey, Jesus saw these two things that were taking place and happening. And first of all, it was the heavens were opened, and secondly, that the Spirit of God was gonna come down upon him. As a representative of heaven, when the Spirit of God comes down, there's actually a long theological debate as whether the picture of a dove is really the way we ought to picture the Holy Spirit. We've taken that imagery and now he's a dove no matter what else we think or talk about. Uh, It would have, but the, the, the language is debated as to whether he's as a dove or like a dove or whether it's even in the form of a dove. But clearly there was a visible presentation of the Spirit of God coming down from heaven to rest upon Jesus. Uh, I think the idea of a dove is mentioned here for a significant reason. In the Old Testament, uh, a dove or a turtle dove was the only clean bird that could be offered for sacrifice. And the, the, the element of that is that it was sort of the poorest of the poor offerings that someone could make. If someone was rich and wealthy, they offered a full-blooded animal uh, as a sacrifice because that's what their resources allowed. But if someone was really poor, even the poorest of poor could afford a dove. And the idea of a dove was that it was ceremony, ceremonially clean and usable for sacrifices in the Old Testament. And the picture to me as I look at this simply says is that with the Spirit of God coming down like this on Jesus is that the sacrifice ultimately of Christ is going to be sufficient for anyone, whether they're rich or whether they're desperately poor. That he is going to be sufficient for everyone. And it tells us that as as this presence of the Spirit comes down, that God is putting his seal upon Jesus as his representative from heaven to carry out the mission. And so when we get to this, we talk about the, what I'm gonna call the investiture of Jesus. Now, that's probably not language you use every day. Um, when I, uh, but let me try to illustrate it this way, just so you know what I'm talking about. This is my formal uh, regalia, as it were, when I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, they gave us these. You would recognize it probably if higher education give these out to graduates, depend, usually for doctorates and other things. We know graduation from high school up for the most part. They have big ceremonies, all the staff and faculty get gr- all dressed up in their formal garb and, and gear, and they have a big presentation of those who've successfully completed the course of study, and that's what all this is for. 
But there's a number of different higher education universities that also do what they call an investiture service. And that is designed for the incoming freshman students, and it's kind of the first formal ceremony they do of the school year. What's involved with that is that they do the same thing. All the staff and faculty will grab all their formal regalia that represents uh, their colors and, and the university or the college or whatever it happens to be or seminary, and they have this big ceremony. I picked one up off the, uh, the website. There's a St. Joseph's University in New York does this. It's unique in that it's the first formal academic event of the year. Its venue uh, has, it, it's a venue where they communicate to the incoming students all the expectations and the ideals fostered by the university. So they get to communicate, here's the values, if you're gonna be part of this community, here's the values that we live by. Here's the integrity and the standards by which we want our students and our family here to operate. And so it sets the attitude and the tone for the freshmen's coming in and, and they put on all their gear and everything that's going on. Um, they always, at least at St. Joseph's, they clad themselves in their academic gear uh, and they are, as a unified body, the students will come and commit themselves to the values and spirit of the university by taking the academic integrity pledge. And then finally, uh, the pledging, the staff will go through this with them because they're investing in the students, that's why they call it an investiture, it's the idea of investing. They sort of go through and make a pledge that they will be faithful to invest fully in those students through the course of action that they're doing and the course of study. And so the picture that we're getting here in terms of Jesus' baptism is really, I want to associate with an investiture ceremony. Jesus is just beginning his redemptive ministry for the sake of the gospel and the purpose of the Father, and this is, this is the installment, this is the investiture. This is where Jesus is rec recognized as the one that John spoke about, as the one who's gonna reflect the glory of God. He fully identifies with humanity as a full human being, and yet he is also the representative of heaven. And so the idea of the Spirit of God coming down on him is really this idea of God launching this formally with Jesus and the people that are around them. And it's sacred because I want you to notice that this is one of the texts where all three persons of the Godhead are spoken about. It's critical. We're told that clearly Jesus is a human person in the flesh being baptized by John. He identifies fully with humanity. The Spirit of God comes down out of the heavens, so it's not sourced in anything else. This investiture is not a human academic exercise. It's not sourced in human institutions. It doesn't come from the Pharisees and scribes. It comes from heaven above. And so it becomes this way of God formally investing and communicating to Jesus that the Godhead is fully invested in this together. And so Jesus is kind of feet on the ground. The Spirit of God is the, the seal from heaven that sort of, you know, I've got a, a diploma from my college days and, and schools, and they have their insignia embroiled right on the diploma, the certificate or the degree. And they have the president's name and everything else. Well, the Spirit of God becomes God's seal upon Jesus as the one who is the representative from heaven to carry this out. And so this, as it were, ceremony, as no, though it wouldn't fit our context, uh, is that Jesus will be filled and empowered by the Spirit of, Spirit of God to carry out what God has called him to do. 
Now, I know that's a lot to chew on, but I want to suggest to you as you sort of think about that is that while it doesn't have the same formality, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are sort of go through an investiture thing. The Spirit of God comes to indwell our life the moment we place faith in Christ in him. He moves us from death to life. He makes us a child of God. God puts his seal of approval on us, not only through the Spirit, but in the same way that he declares that Jesus is his beloved Son with whom he is pleased. The moment we trust Christ, God welcomes and accepts us as a child of God in whom he delights in, and he's poured out the riches of his grace, and that's not gonna change. And it's the, when we come to faith in Christ, it's the, the inauguration of a journey where the Godhead is fully invested in your life for the rest of your life to carry out the purpose of his redemptive plan, not only in your life, but how he can use you to be the person who might step into one other person's life at different times in life to change the trajectory of the crisis and the brokenness of their life towards an eternal destiny that is filled with the hope of the gospel. But in American Christianity, we have become ferociously selfish. That we've trusted Christ and sometimes we treat it like we're doing God a favor. Like, isn't he really fortunate to have me? No one ever says that out loud, but you know, even the best of us kind of, we, we do it when we compare ourselves to other people. Why aren't they doing this? How come they're not doing more? How come they're, and so we get into this, and I think at times disrespects all the investiture that God has made in us because we compare ourselves to what God has someone else doing rather than worrying about what God wants to do in us. And so as, as you consider the reality of this, God puts his son front and center on stage. He puts his personal seal of approval by giving the Spirit of God and he makes this great declaration from above that this is my beloved son. I am pleased with him. And he launches this individual into a broken Israel because Jesus is the one, as much as John can stir things up, and he's calling them to a baptism of repentance, John made it very clear, Jesus is the one that can touch your life and change the trajectory of it for eternity, not just for a moment. And I can't help but think that as we consider this that there may be some individuals who are here or watching have you ever considered, you, you might know Jesus, you might grow up in an environment where you heard about Jesus, but the question is, have you surrendered to God through faith in Christ? You might say, well, I've been there and tried that. Tried going to church, tried to get involved, tried to serve, doesn't really do anything for me. Tried to read the Bible, don't get it. Started in the New Old Testament, got to Leviticus, crashed and burned. It's not working for me. And the issue is, is that God is not a concierge who snaps his fingers and fix your circumstances. He wants you to surrender to Christ so he can change your life. And we, ha we have to make sure we're not tempted to treat God like a concierge to make my life successful where he's trying to invest in me to transform my life. Sometimes we worry way too much about God changing 
my spouse or my kids or whatever. Rather than God's use all the resources of heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the revelation of his word, and he's saying, listen, when you trust Christ, I've got your back and I'm invested in you for the rest of your life. And yet there's a lot of Christians who are utterly bored with that whole idea. And you can tell because they have no time to pray, they don't read their Bible, couldn't memorize a verse if their life depended on it, don't want to serve, like being a spectator. Got my own plans and purposes, God, when I have time, I'll fit you in, but. God of the universe sacrifices son not as an inspirational moment to get you out of a discouraging situation, but to transform your life for the rest of your life. (laughs) I'm more of a golf fan than I am a horse fan, but I couldn't help but notice yesterday they had the 148th running of the Kentucky Derby you're a horse person, you'll know exactly where I'm going with this. They, uh, of course, they spend like six hours talking about the race and taking two minutes to run it. I I don't know how the horses deal with it, to be honest, but anyway. But the, 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 they have everyone at odds, you know, they, they've, the odds of winning and they've bet on it. I mean, there's over, there's millions and millions of dollars goes into betting on these horse races. And they, you can win, bet on the winner, you can bet on, you know, all kinds of variables to it. And it's obviously for the rich and famous and whatever else goes on. What's extraordinary about the race yesterday is that they have a couple of horses, of course, that were five to one and seven to one that were obviously the front runners in terms of winning the race. And as you watch the race, the ultimate winner happened to be a horse called Rich Strike, who was 80 to 1 to win. He was the least likely to win in the entire race. In fact, they almost bordered on saying this guy had more, he's the at odds worst person or horse to win in all of Derby history almost. I think there had one other time where there was a horse that won that had worse odds than him, but this guy couldn't win if he was racing puppies. I mean, it just. He just was not going to win. In fact, as I watched it this morning, it was kind of like he comes out of the gate and he's literally last in line as they go past like where the ultimate finish line. He must be at least 12 or 15 lengths behind everybody. It's ridiculous. Uh, These horses get out on a pace that's like ferocious. The guy even, the commentator is like, wow, these guys like won a 43 flat half mile or something. He's going like, wow, that's just blistering. So this guy started, this horse starts working its way up, and I'm still, they get all the way around, come to the last turn, and I swear he's still 10 or 12 lengths behind. I have no idea. I kept thinking they're going to disqualify this horse because there's just no way he can pull this off. But he wakes his way up there, and it's, it's fantastic. Listen to the commentator. He's like, these two horses are head and head, and they're getting to the, and all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute. Rich Strike is like right on top of him, and he just goes nuts. Just, and then, you know, in the last, 10 yards, this horse overtakes them and wins, and he goes, this is one of the most stunning, unbelievable upsets in all of Derby history. Because this horse was not bet on to win. It was completely unfathomable. And you might say, well, 
Why would you worry about that? In fact, this horse was kind of interesting because they, he wasn't even registered in the race till Friday. They had like two minutes to the deadline and somehow, I don't know how it works, but anyway, he qualified like with minutes left to qualify for this race, he got in. So he wasn't even on the card for like the last month. The jockey, this is the first time he's read, rode in the derby. Could you, I mean, you can't dream this stuff up. It's like, there's no way this guy, he's, you'd think he'd be running backwards, you know, just trying to figure out what to do. And it's inconceivable that that moment was a moment that he was in the right place at the right time and he changed everything. And the danger for most of us is that we get into our ruts in life and we look at the life in front of us and we're going, there's no way it's going to change. I'm going to run my little race and I'm going to do my little thing. It's not going to compare to anybody else's and I know it's not going to make a difference and I'm not going to be very significant. I'm from, uh, my life is kind of worthless and nobody would want to be my friend. I'm from, I've got a really disreputable background and I can't even think of anyone who would want to even take the time for me. And Jesus is one who came from a pretty sketchy background. Great parents, but they started off with the appearance that she had committed adultery. They got shoveled into Egypt because someone was trying to destroy them. They got called back and, and God says, listen, go to Galilee. And I suspect, although I obviously can't prove it, that they figured Nazareth would be a really good place to hide just in case somebody was looking. It's kind of the inner city of Galilee. Pretty insignificant. Not a place you even want to be from. And John comes along and says, there's someone that's coming who from all human perspectives you just ignore and not pay any attention to. But I'm presenting him to you as someone who's so far worthy of me, I'm not even worthy to undo his sandals. But he can change everything. I don't know whether you think Mother's Day is a great day or the most miserable day of your life. I don't know whether you love your family or hate them. I don't know whether you're blaming everybody else for your circumstances or you're willing to say that my choices and the way I live is just stinky and I'm stuck with it. But I want to tell you here that God sent his son and he gave him as a representative from heaven because he understands the mess of humanity. And maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, but I am telling you based on the authority of scripture that he can change everything for you. But sometimes as Christians, we need to be reminded of the same thing. There's nothing worse than a Christian that has become so discouraged and depressed because I can't compete and I can't compare. I really haven't learned about my identity in Christ, so I still think I'm worthless. I still never do anything that'll be worth anything to the Father. And if you were gonna bet on me, the odds wouldn't be 80 to one, they'd beat 800 to one.
I'm telling you, the issue isn't whether we can impress people and we can necessarily make the difference, but Jesus is the person who, if you go face to face with him today, can change everything for you. And then, as strange as it may seem, he may be able to use us, no matter how inexperienced we are, to ride into someone's life and move alongside of them and speak the hope of the gospel so that God can use you to be the person that changes everything from one other person that you might know. Is that the Jesus that you know? Is that the kind of life that you want to live? All I can do is plead with you to say, I think God was putting his stamp on the representative for heaven because he can make all the differences on earth. Pray with me, if you will. Father, often we claim to know Jesus, but we live like we're abandoned. We quote scripture left and right, but we don't live like it makes any difference in the way we live. We confess Jesus, but make choices that don't really say that we trust how he's leading us. Father, there's people who have been around Jesus and been exposed. Maybe they've come from backgrounds that just figure they're boxed into a certain way of life and certain behaviors that they'll never get free from. And I think the baptism of Jesus by John tells us that while people can make a difference and inspire us to something different than where we're at, as John did with the people of Israel. Jesus is the person who can change everything. Father, for many of us, it's just a matter of getting before your throne of grace and confessing our arrogance and our pride. That while we confess him, we've been making choices that don't reflect him. We read your word, but We don't drink deeply of it and feed on it. Father, forgive us at times for not recognizing the majesty of your servant Jesus. Because he does change everything. May it begin with us. In Christ's name, amen.